couple really quick announcements, because I think God has some great things for us this morning. We're starting something new Wednesday we have never done. Um, we're going to have our traditional midweek. Our classes have ended, and uh, I think uh, they really went well. But we're going to do something different this time. We're doing what we're calling breakouts. Now, everything for the children all the way through senior high stays the same. However, the men are going to gather on the deck that's upstairs, and we're going to study the book of Colossians, and the women will be in here going through a class led by Beth Moore. Lisa Meredith will be the proctor. We feel like we're in a season where we want to put men and women together, and instead of having men come out Monday, women on Tuesday, churches Wednesday, we thought, why don't we do it while we're all here and we have child care and we're really looking forward to it. We think we've heard from God, and I think there's something God wants to do in these subsets. When we get to the new year, we'll go back to our traditional midweek. So that's number one. Number two, if you're in ministry training, our next session with Bill Butterworth is about communication. Now, you've already paid for that, and it's going to be a dynamic session. If you haven't joined ministry training, you just want to come for this one day. It's $39. Bill teaches a communication seminar that costs $900. He does it for American Express and churches. And listen, this is what I want to say to you. If you're in ministry, you have to learn how to communicate. God communicated to us through the word. We have to be communicators. And there is skill in communication. If I were young, I'd be at this seminar for $39. I'd give my eye teeth for it. I wish I learned how to communicate when I was younger. When someone comes to me, I don't care where they went to college. All right? Some people think I'm a college graduate. Great. Chick-fil-A is right up the street. Listen, you have to learn how to read, write, and speak. You're hireable if you could do those three things. You could sign up on the web. Men, uh, men's retreat signups are out there. I'm getting this weird hearing sensation that some guys are saying, um, the retreat's on Halloween. Um, are you kidding me? So, ladies, let them off the hook so I don't have to go there, okay? Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Say a really quick prayer. God, thanks for the worship this morning, Lord. Kelly's enthusiasm and um, her love for you. Thank you for the great words that we sang and that we can do this every week, Lord. It's good for the soul. And, uh, Lord, as we sit under your word, I think you have something special for us this morning. And so give us ears to hear, in Jesus' name, amen. Two Saturdays ago, I left church, our ministry training on Saturday, and I caught a flight to Boston where I was going to look at a church that does multi-site ministry, something we're looking to do in 2015. So on Sunday, I woke up, I went to an extension campus, then I went to the regular service, I interviewed a bunch of people, finally had a late lunch with the senior pastor, and was really looking forward to some R&R at the hotel to watch afternoon football. I didn't want to go to my room, so when I walked in the hotel, they had screens everywhere in the lounge. However, the game I wanted to watch was not on those screens. It was only at the bar. So I went to the bartender. I said, is there any way you can put that game over here on the lounge? He said, you know, you're like the 100th person that asked, but there's something wrong with the remote, and it can't be done. So I thought, okay, I'm not too religious to sit at a bar, but there was only one seat there. So I sat in that one seat, felt a little strange, right, next to me is a husband and wife couple, Denver Bronco fans. Now, they're in full regalia, and they're commenting on every play, like Peyton Manning's God, and it's nauseating, but I'm like, okay, I can deal with it. The girl next to me is in a texting argument with her boyfriend. I didn't even know you could argue via text. 
And I thought, geez, I gotta sit here for three hours. Maybe I should start drinking. <laughs> I'm only joking. I ordered my ginger ale and began watching the game. Now, an elderly British woman comes along and talks to the bartender. And it looks like they've had many conversations. Maybe she was trying to navigate her way through Boston. And she leaves, and the bartender comes over to me. We've struck up a conversation about football. And he says, man, what a sad story. I'm like, what's going on? He said, well, her only daughter late in life came over to America to be a nanny and then died of stomach cancer. And now she's come over here to sprinkle the ashes in the backyard uh, where this girl was a nanny. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's, that's rough. That's, that's a tough one. That night in the hotel, right near the bar, I'm at a stand-up table eating a pizza. And the same English woman comes over to talk to my waitress about something. So when she's done, I look and I said, oh, you're that English woman that was at the bar today. And she said, yeah. I said, if you don't have anyone to eat dinner with, why don't you eat with me? Now, did I say she was elderly, like 70 years old? So don't worry about it. <laughs> so we start eating dinner, and she's making small talk, and then she tells me the story, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I said, guess what I do for a living? And she said, what? I said, I'm a pastor, and she kind of laughed right in front of me. I said, don't I look like one? Like, what, what's wrong? She goes, I don't even know what that is, to be honest. And she changed the subject, as people often do. And I said, ma'am, would you ever stop to consider that maybe you planned to come here and sprinkle your daughter's ashes, but God arranged for me to be in this hotel to tell you that he really loves you and cares about you? And she said, don't get me started on religion. She said, religion is one of the worst things on this planet. It's caused most of the wars. It's a bad idea. And most of the religious people I know are bad people. And then I had to do what you've had to do scores of time, right? It's very difficult. I had to say, ma'am, Christianity, the Jesus I follow, isn't a religion. It's what? It's a relationship with God. And it's really hard to drive this through to someone. You know, it's hard to say, you know, the Apostle Paul, all the statues you've seen of Paul of your, all your life, he was a religious man. And you know what Jesus said to him? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, you're right. There's been a lot of bad done in the name of religion. All of you in this room, or maybe 90% of you, if we talked, you would say, well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's through grace, and I had a conversion. There's probably 10% of you on a Sunday morning who really don't know what that means. You've never entered into that. Maybe you're kicking the tires around here. You're wondering what that means. We're glad you're here. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to you about why we have a personal relationship with God and then I want to talk to you about living in the full reality because even if you're a card-carrying follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not sure you're living in the fullness. I want to start by saying the English word religion comes from the Latin relingere, which means to relink. So man has chosen two ways to live on the earth. Uh, one man looks at the natural world and says, okay, uh, science told me through evolutionary process that we arrived here by chance and one day I'll leave by chance. So while I'm here, I have to find a moral way to live, a series of right and wrongs. Now, that was the lie in the garden, by the way, that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God and you could decide what's good and what's evil. I just found out the other day there's 57 genders now. <laughs> 
Now, God seems to make things simple, right? In the beginning, he created the male and female. How did we go from two to 57? You know, God always has the easier way, right? The anatomy works, the parts fit. Anyway, um, so that's one way to live. The other way to live is say, okay, there is a supreme being. Maybe he's unknowable, but, you know, we've had tradition and teachers that said, here's the path or here's the way. And if you keep all the rules, then, then you can get to this holy God or this master of the universe or whatever you want to call it. Almost every world religion, every sect will say, here's our teacher, and they told us, here's how we can relink with God. Christianity gives another option. The book of Galatians is talking about the gospel, the good news. The good news of this option is that you don't have to relink with God. He's already made a way to relink with you. You don't have to climb the ladder and follow tradition and rules and regulations. He came down the ladder in the incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness. He was born of a woman. He took on a human frame. He became one of us. Religion says keep all the rules and regulations and obey and you'll be accepted by God. Christianity says you are accepted by God if you come to Christ through grace and now you're free to obey. It's a way different option. Let's read Galatians chapter 4. There are many scholars that tell us this may be the most fascinating set of verses in the New Testament. Uh, back up to verse 27 to get the flavor. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. I'll explain that in a minute. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, talked about that last week according to the promise. Now follow the flow here. Chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were slaves to the elementary principles or rudiments of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, at the very exact time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, why? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has set his spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a, a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through Christ. Now, I want to unpack this. It's very powerful. It's saying that Jesus came as a human being, born under the law, to die for us. Why? That he might redeem us. That word redeem is a financial term, to buy us back, literally. For what purpose? Verse 5, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. Now, we live in a gender-neutral world. I get it, right? So I can't call the mailman the mailman anymore. It's the male person, the cable person. I get it. I can accept it, all right? But this is one place in the Bible where even some of our looser translations wouldn't dare mess with the idiom here that Christ has made us sons. Ladies, you'll get your idiom in a moment. God is fair. You are a son. I am a son. If you're in Christ, we are sons and we are heirs. Why is that important? 
Because Paul was writing to a Roman world, and this is what they understood. Children, before they were adults, boys or girls, and women had no rights. They couldn't own property, etc. That was Roman law. When a son became of age, he became an heir of all that the father had. Even the Jews had this understanding, right? A son at bar mitzvah became bar, the son of mitzvah, the law, and he was an adult and he could be an heir. Now, the Romans also had a law where a wealthy person, if they had no son, could adopt an heir. Remember, a son means a legal heir. So this man would go out and he would look for a son. You never adopted a girl. It was always a a boy. And when you adopted this son, uh, when he came into your family, all his debts were canceled. He took on your name and you would become heir of all that he had one day. As an heir, you would receive the inheritance and the only thing he afforded you was obedience like any son would give to a father. Now, with that background, do you understand Galatians a little more? Where it says here that we were adopted out of this world, that we were like slaves, children under the law. We we came out of this world and became sons. By the way, sometimes the Bible mistranslates that we are the children of God. That's a mistranslation. They tried to make it more gender equivalent, saying, oh, we're all God's children. No, we're God's sons, even the ladies, okay? This is why John 1, verse 10 says, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jews, and they did not receive him, but as many as received him, he gave the right, that's a legal term, the power of attorney, to become children of God, literally to become sons of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, doesn't matter how you were raised or where you were raised, but of God. He gave them the right. You and I have the legal right as adoption as sons. Now women, you make out as usual in the end with the idioms, because guess what? Even though you're a son, guess what the whole church is? The bride of Christ, okay? So you guys win all around. Sons, naturally, that's who we are, heirs and sons. We now have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ who redeemed us. And let me say this, it's the only way to a personal relationship with God. And here's where people get their back up. See, this is why I can't stand Christianity. It's exclusive. You're claiming your God's better than this God. No, 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 we're not. Christianity is the only religion to have offered this. It's the only belief system that offered this. Study Hinduism and Buddhism. Look at world religions. They don't believe there's a personal relationship. God is an infinite being that's unknowable. In Islam, if you said you could know God personally, personally, um, that would be disrespectful. They don't believe that. Only Christianity offers this Only Jesus redeemed us. If you want to be redeemed another way and if all paths lead to God, show me how that redemption works. Show me how we were bought back. See, in Christianity, we don't have a moral teacher telling us the way to God. We have a teacher who was God who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The beautiful thing now is that we not only know about God through his word, 
We can know God. Makes all the difference. John wrote this in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know you have eternal life. And this is eternal life that you might know me and the Father who sent me. And then maybe the, one of the greatest scriptures in all the Bible, Revelation chapter 3. To the lukewarm church, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. What God wants to sit down and dine with you? Isn't that what Jesus did on the Tudor Road to Emmaus? He gave in this great Bible study and he said, hey, let's go eat and we'll, we'll do more Bible study. God wants to dine with you. Now, follow the metaphor here. If I went out to lunch with you and I didn't know you today, it'd be a little awkward, right? What am I going to say? Where are you going to be offended? You know, first dates are weird, right? You make sure you don't wear white, you don't order spaghetti, and then, oh my gosh, what am I going to say in this deal, right? But what if I went out with my family after? I'm not worried about what I'm going to say. We've had communion, we've eaten, we've shared life together. We know one another. We can finish each other's sentences. This is what a personal relationship is. A personal relationship with God. Now, how do you get a personal relationship with God? Well, you get saved by grace through faith, right? But I want to say something that's going to sound strange, and then I'm going to backpedal and give it some clarity. A personal relationship with God is built through one way and one way only, and that's prayer. Now, prayer isn't let me go over here, kneel before a cross, and pray all day. Prayer isn't repetitive prayers. It's not let me pray eight hours, join a monastery. No, that's not prayer. Prayer, like the dining metaphor, is just talking to God. Just talking to him. You know, go back and read the Psalms. That's all that David and the psalmist are doing. Lord, where are you when I need you? Lord, how they've increased the trouble me. Lord, my bed is full of tears. God, um, when are you going to show up? It's the book of Psalms, just talking to God. Everybody has their own way to do this. You can sit on a park bench, your car, and you just begin talking to God. You read his word, he talks back to you, and then you see all of life through his eyes. So when you go out in the fall and you look at the leaves turning, or you go along with guards, you look at the flowers, you say, God, how did you do this? In other words, God is the center of your mind. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. And this is how you build a relationship with God. Now, Jesus opened the barn doors to this, wide open. When the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. They looked at his relationship with God and they knew something was different. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus just, just I mean, opened our minds to a concept that was so foreign when he said, our Father who art in heaven. Now, the rest of it is a rabbinical prayer. It has a lot of different points to it, but I want to hang on that one, the Lord's Prayer. It's maybe the most common prayer in the world. It's maybe the prayer that's been said the most. Most people don't even know what they're saying. I said it for 21 years, never knew God was my Father. Our Father who art in heaven. The Jews with the 39 books in the Old Testament never had that concept, although it was hinted at. The Greco-Roman gods or anyone today has no concept that God can be Father. The current um, generation, the millennial generation, 14 to 35, is being named the fatherless generation. 
Divorced parents, broken homes, and absentee fathers um, are not an anomaly like it, they were in the 60s and 70s when I was raised. It is almost the norm. Now, I went to Catholic school. We had 48 kids in a class. One nun, no AIDS. One nun, sometimes one senile nun. 48 kids in a class. That's why my grammar's bad. And my, my, I can't do fractions well because there were just years that were missing in my education. But anyway... Um, we had 48 kids in a class, three sections of a grade. I had 1,000 kids in my first to eighth grade grade school. Three of us in like a third grade class, 120 kids, only three of us had divorced parents. The back of my report card would say, mother's signature, father's signature, and guardian. Today, I think the public school report card has like seven possibilities for who could sign. Today, it's the norm. Father hunger is deep inside many men and women. And I want to say this, father hunger probably runs in all of us. We were hardwired to connect with God as our father. That's the proverbial gap that's missing in each and every one of us. Which, by the way, I think I'm on to something. You know, I always get tired when I hear people uh, give the death knell of the church. Oh, Europe, you know, Europe preach the gospel and now they're 2% Christian and America's going to go that way and you know this and that and every time you say that God does something else like 40 years ago South Korea was 2% Christian now they're 60% Christian and most of the eastern world is taking off there's 100 million Chinese Christians and London's having a spiritual revival and you know God's always going to move he's always going to save people so guess what I think our message now can be our message to the millennial generation, really all generations, is you have a father. And even if you were raised in a great home, you have a father that supersedes any earthly father. Even if you had the best dad, he's evil compared to the father in heaven. Notice again what Paul says here. Christ was born under the law, born at just the right time to redeem us. That's like an overview. But then look down at verse 5 and 6. And then the spirit of his son has personally been put in your heart that you can cry out. See how personal that is? You can literally cry out to God. And here's what you're crying out. Abba, which is the Aramaic for daddy. It's a term of endearment. You cry out, Abba, Father. If you go to Israel, all the little toddlers say, Abba, Abba, that's, that's daddy. So we now have the ability to, to walk with God. Now, it will never be like Adam. Adam was the only human being to fully walk with God, and I don't even know what that means. The rest of us look at a glass dimly, right? You know, there's going to be a day when it's face to face. But the shorter catechism said that this is the goal of man, to love God and enjoy him forever. And so the only way to a fruitful life, that's a series we're in, is to be connected in relationship to God, to commune with him. You're not going to make it a Calvary Chapel without a Bible, by the way. Hope you all know that. We'll put a couple of verses on the screens. But if you make this your church, you need a Bible. And I know some of you have it on your phone. But look, this is a tool. It's a sword, right? Guys have their favorite golf club, their favorite screwdriver, fishing rod, ladies, same thing. If you don't have a Bible, go to Barnes & Noble at the service and buy one. And buy one you can write in. Frame the one you have if you can't write in it. And buy one you can write in. Because you need to sit in a chair with this open. And you need to enter into a relationship with God. And let him speak. And you speak to him. 
How was this relationship made possible? Three minutes or less. When God created man, he freely gave him all things, but love demands a choice. So he said, of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Man ate of it, he sinned. Instead of God wiping man off the face of the earth, which he could have done, by grace he provided a sacrifice and a prophecy that a Messiah would come. He calls a man named Abraham and endows Abraham with great riches. Tells him he's going to be a great nation. Abraham comes to God and he says, God, I have no heir. And he he goes looking for an heir and God said, no, your heir will come from your body and your wife who's 100 years old and she laughs, you know, she overhears and they have a child and they name him Isaac, which means laughter and Abraham lives his life. When Isaac becomes an adult, Genesis 22, God says, now take this son, your only son, who thou lovest, first time love is used in the Bible, and bring him to a specific place I will show you and offer him there as a sacrifice. So now we understand from the Bible that love always involves worship and an only son and a specific place. And it sets up the Bible's greatest story. And God stops Abraham and says, I'll provide myself a sacrifice. And Abraham obeys God. It's accounted to him as righteousness. He obeys, though he doesn't understand. 400 years later, Moses brings the law. The the things of God are codified, the requirements. We love God more than ourselves. We love man as much as ourselves. And the law, if you tried to keep it, had its shortcomings. That's why every day you would see smoke rising because sinless animals were being sacrificed. The law was our schoolmaster. It was like training wheels. Jesus came to fulfill it, but we could never keep it. In the fullness of time. That translation is is at the exact right time. You know Jesus came at the exact right time? You know, God wasn't up there sweating bullets saying, I better send Jesus because everything's going amok. It was at the exact right time. Pax Romana covered the world. That means there were no known wars. The Romans have built roads through the Roman Empire so the gospel could freely travel, and Greek was the language of the day, much like English is in our day. Jesus was born at the exact right time, born of a woman, became one of us, born under the law. Now maybe this will help. His sacrifice paid the penalty for our sins. Say you robbed the bank. You go to court, judge says you're guilty, 25 years in prison or a million dollar bail. I don't want to go to prison for 25 years. I don't have a million dollars. So what if someone walked in and said, well, here's the million. You're free. We look at that and say, yes. Right? In fact, some of us think that's what God did. Jesus paid for my sins. Yes, that's grace. I love it. No, that's mercy, or it's what I would call half of grace. Most Christians live on half of grace. Do you realize that? You're going to be surprised to send the message, I do it and you do it. Most of us are living on half a tank when it comes to grace. See, real grace looks something like this. This is why it's scandalous. This is why people have a hard time to believe it, that English woman or anyone you witness to. Grace says, here's the million dollars, you're free. And by the way, here's the keys to a Ferrari and a condo in South Beach. See, mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. And what none of us deserved was to become heirs of all that God has. Uh, You'll be happy with this. This is the last week I'm going to draw this tree we've been looking at. 
We're talking about the fruitful life. We all want to bear fruit, right? And we talk about the tree in Psalm 1 by the rivers of living water. That's the Holy Spirit. And we said, well, the only way to be fruitful is for the soil of our hearts to be grace. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any one of us should boast. And by the way, when it's of grace, I can't be condescending to someone who doesn't believe the way I do. How can I be condescending to someone who has another belief system when I came in by grace? I didn't earn anything. And by the way, if it's by grace, how could I be mad at God when things don't work out? Like if somebody dies prematurely, I can't go to God and say, God, you didn't keep your bargain. I brought nothing to the table. So, so grace changes everything, right? It really does. So what's the roots of a fruitful life? Our relationship with God. That's what's going to sustain you. Your personal relationship with God. The greatest father-son story, and by the way, ladies, your sons, you all know that now. The greatest father-son story in the Bible is Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. You all know the story. The son says, I don't want the father. I just want his money. Takes his money, spends it on all his friends, goes broke, and then comes to his senses in a pig pen and says, man, I could be living in my father's house. My father's a good businessman, treats his servants well, they get paid well. And he decides to go back. You have to go back and look at Luke 15 because there's things that we forget. But in Luke 15, when the son is seen by the father afar off, the father who's God in the parable, guess what he does? He runs to the son. It's the only place in the Bible where God runs. And the son comes and he falls at his feet. And the father said, I'm going to put a ring on your finger, a robe on your back, and we're going to kill the fatted half. Go back and read the story. He says all that before the son says anything. Now the son's a lot like you and me. He believes in half grace. Son thinks, I'll go back and tell dad, I don't have to be your son. Just being in your house is good enough. I'll be a hired servant and man, life will be good. How many of us approach God that way? And what does it do to the heart of God when you approach him as a businessman? You must wreck him, right? How many ex-Catholics in the room? Raise your hand. Recovering Catholics, whatever you want to call it. Raise your hand real high. Yeah. So we had this false humility as Catholics where we weren't sure if we were going to heaven. But what was our out, right? That somehow Mary would say a good word for us? Peter, right? That would get us in? Well, guess what the Protestants' false humility is? Well, I know I'm going to heaven, but I'm going to be in the last row, right? That's like humility. No, it's false humility. What dad would put you in the last row, right? An earthly dad might. See, we have a lot of false humility because we don't understand grace. We just don't understand it. We approach God as a businessman. God, oh, I know I'm a mess and I'm a wreck and... You don't have to give me what you promised. Just give me a little bit of this. And, and do you realize he's our dad? It's, it's overwhelming. If Bill Gates adopted you tomorrow, your life would change dramatically. First of all, your debts would be canceled. Second of all, you would be heir to billions. And you know what your last name would become? Gates. 
right? It's a pretty good deal. You wouldn't have deserved any of it, but it would be all yours, see? This is why the natural mind is so weird. You know, evolution, chance. Uh, oh, yo, you know, by chance we're all here. No, this is by God's design. He willingly did this for us. We are heirs of all things. You know, as a pastor, as a church leader, I get criticized right now. Don't feel bad for me. It comes with the territory. I'm kind of like a quarterback of a football team. If things are going well, I get the credit. If they're going bad, I get all the blame. I get that, right? You know how I've gotten through criticism for 21 years? Most of the time it goes off my back. It doesn't mean I'm not above reproach or I don't care. I just have this relationship with God that started 31 years ago that has never changed. And no matter what anybody says, I go to him and he understands. And I forged this for 31 years. At the end of the day, I don't really care what people think. I don't even care what my heart is telling me because it's desperately wicked. I know what he thinks of me. He knows my motives. He searches my heart. We're so worried about the horizontal. We're so worried about doctrine and getting everything right, we forget the vertical. The vertical is what sustains us, this relationship with God. The joy of knowing him is what produces fruit in my life. Bob Russell pastored Southeastern Christian Church for 40 years in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he got out of college and grew that church from 188 to 18,000. And yes, the math is correct. 188 to 18,000. He retired like on a dime at 65 years old. And I found out this year he was going to be at Billy Graham's training center, the coast. So I thought, wow, to gain his wisdom might be a good idea. So I went down there with about 100 pastors. And he told a story that I thought was fascinating. Um, the younger guy that was to take over his ministry was called Kyle Eidelman. And uh, Kyle was one of these new guys with a beard and he wore jeans. And, but on Sunday morning in Bob Russell's church, you had to wear a suit and tie. So when Kyle would preach, he'd wear a suit and tie. And finally he went into Bob's office and he said, Bob, I can't do it anymore. He said, I understand we're supposed to wear a suit and tie, but it doesn't feel right. I feel like I'm being choked. And even the people I'm preaching to know it's not me. And Bob Russell said, well, Kyle, when we go to church, the God of the universe is in our midst. If you went and visited the President of the United States, the White House today, wouldn't you wear a suit and tie? To which Kyle Eidelman said, you know, I probably would unless he were my dad. And Bob Russell thought, you smart aleck kid. <laughs> Isn't that a great, great story? Unless he were my dad. You realize the access we have to God? as our father. I don't have to go through a priest or a pastor. I don't, I don't need an intermediary. I don't need an appointment. To see important people today, you have to go through secretaries and assistants. You have full access, Hebrew says, to the God of the universe. And you are an heir. If you could get this down, it's a game changer. It really is. Because we hold on so tight to, to worldly things, and I do too, and it's all we know. But whatever you're going through now, do you realize one day you're an heir of all things? The Bible says that the earth is groaning, even the creation's groaning, even the natural world wants to get this over with. Why? 
Because there's the restoration of all things coming. And in Genesis, you were the pinnacle of God's creation. And you will be in the future. And when God remakes this earth, you will be heir of all things. And I don't even know what that means. But I know it's the grandest thing that will ever happen. And you have a legal right to it. This is what Paul's burning in the hearts of people. That's why he's saying, why would you ever go back to the elementary rudiments of keeping the law and keeping Sabbaths and days? Why would you ever go back to religion when you have a legal right to be heirs of everything? Jill Briscoe's doing our women's event this Christmas. And Jill tells a story how she was in a church in Croatia where she was scheduled to speak and 200 brand new refugee women had come into the meeting. And she was terrified. She had prepared a message. Speakers often do this. They prepare a message. They look at the crowd. And they're like, I can't give this message to this crowd. So she goes in a storage room. She says, please, God, give me something to say. There's no men here because they've all died in battle. They're all wounded. There's only women here. She put aside her notes and she started to tell the women about Jesus. How as a child he'd become a refugee himself. She told of how his parents had to flee out of Egypt, pursued, flee to Egypt, pursued by Herod's soldiers, and how they had left everything behind. She told of the rest of Jesus' life, too, and finished by describing what Jesus suffered on the cross. She told it as, as it was, not as in the pictures, Jesus hanging naked on the cross. She finished her message by saying, all these things have happened to you. You're homeless. You've had to flee. You've suffered unjustly, but you didn't have a choice. He had a choice. He knew all this would happen, and he still came. And then she told him why. Many of the refugees knelt down, put their hands in in the air, and wept. He's the only one who understands, they cry. He's the only one who understands. Many of us are killing ourselves trying to get people to understand. Some of you lost your dads in this room. My wife lost her dad at 15. Some of you had mean, terrible dads. Some of you had great dads. Father hunger is in each and every one of us. Some of you don't even know grace. Some of you hear this personal relationship deal, you're not even sure what it is. You've been invited to Calvary, you like the music, there's something about this place, but you've never walked through the threshold of grace, never acknowledged Christ's work personally. You can do that today. When the service ends, we'll have prayer leaders here. They can walk you through what that looks like, someone who brought you. But if you don't walk through that door, you're fooling yourself. And you're not only fooling yourself, you you are limiting yourself to all that can be yours. There's a God with his track shoes on this morning that wants to run to you and wants to make you a son and heir of all things. If you're a Christian this morning, maybe you're living off half of grace thinking God's a businessman or he's working on karma or some other deal. The Bible says if you confess your sin, you go right into the throne room. Jesus said if you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. He's not going to make you something you don't want to be. I want to finish by reading two words or two scriptures from the Apostle John. And I quoted John a lot today. You know why? Because he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the way he saw himself. And he said, that which we've touched and tasted concerning the word of life. 1 John chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 28, he said, Now little children, abide in him, 
So that when he appears, listen to this word, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You have confidence in God this morning? Do you really, really trust him with your life? 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The Bible says unequivocally without a shadow of a doubt that God knows you and he can be known. I don't care if you walk with God for 30 years. The truth of this needs to sear into your being. My wife lost her dad at 15. Never complained about it. You know what she'll tell you? I thank God I had him for 15 years. When we got married, I watched her sit on a basement floor with no car, raising kids, forging a relationship with God. Guys, this can't be outsourced. No one's going to do it for you. You're not a victim. You have access to the God of the universe. And he loves you more than you'll ever know. And that English woman left, unsure, couldn't convince her. And my prayer was, God, when she goes to California, have someone else cross her path. Because it's not about religion. You know, I find out I'm becoming more religious every year I get older. Look at this building. There's, there's not an icon in here. There's not a cross. There's, not, there's nothing in here. Because it's in here. It's here. You can know him. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for all that you've done. Lord, we want to be a congregation of trees. Rooted in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, walking in relationship with you, the overflow coming out of us to everyone we meet. Lord, we pray for that English woman. We pray for the person in the cubicle next to us, the family next door. Lord, we are your ambassadors compelling them. Lord, not to come into what's right, but to come into what's true and living. Lord, we extend that invitation to those who are here after the service, that they might know you, the fellowship of your suffering, and the power of your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.